think Jesus would say if he visited our church? Kind of the ultimate undercover boss. If he showed up here this morning and he was maybe even sitting uh, next to you and he didn't know that he was there, but then after the service, he came up here and said, all right, we're going to huddle up and we're going to talk. What do you think Jesus might, might say about us? What do, what do you think he would say about the way that we greeted one another or, or did not greet one another this morning? What about the way that we, we welcomed visitors? What do you think he might say about the, the life of our church and the way that we, we care for one another? Especially when we're, there's weakness or sickness or prolonged need. What do you think Jesus might say about the way that we speak to and about one another? Both in public and in, in private. What do you think Jesus might say about the way that we forgive one another? Or our hospitality toward one another? I wonder, fellow elders, what he would say to us about our teaching and the way that we lead and feed the flock. What would he say about what we do with money? About whether we're generous or stingy? What would he say about our purity? What do you think Jesus would say to us? Or to you? Well, as we come to the book of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we we get an opportunity to watch Jesus visit seven churches. And in His walking among them, He is examining them. And then He is going to, through the Apostle John, speak words to them. He's going to give them words of encouragement. He's going to give them words of correction. And He's going to give them words of, of promise. And this morning in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we're going to see his, his first encounter with, with the church, and it's the, the church at Ephesus. And as we're watching Jesus have these encounters with these churches and Him walking among them and speaking to them and <coughs> correcting them and encouraging them, uh, we're going to see that there's a, each of these messages ends with, with, with this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're going to see that this is not just Jesus speaking to these churches, but it's speaking to all of the churches, including our church. So as we listen to him speaking to the church at Ephesus, we should listen to hear what he might be saying to us as well. His, kind of the summary of his message to the church at Ephesus is this, that a church's love for the truth must flow from its love for Jesus. A church's love for the truth must flow from its love for Jesus. Or if you want to approach it more negatively, you might say uh, to love the truth without loving Jesus and others is to miss the whole point of being a church. A church's love for the truth must flow from its love for Jesus. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. 
I know you are patiently enduring and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, verse 5, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The city of Ephesus was a real city, still is today. In the first century, it was the capital city of Asia Minor. Depending on who you ask, it had a population of around a a quarter million people, roughly about the same size as Arlington, if you want to compare it to something nearby. Ephesus was known for lots of things, but primarily two things. It had a bustling commercial center on the east side of the city. uh, There was a busy trading port right along one of the major rivers in the Aegean Sea. And then on the west side was what was known as the Royal Road. It was a major intersection of of three of Rome's most important trade routes, which made this city, um, it it was called the, the Vanity Fair of the Ancient World, where if you, anything you want, you can go get it at, at Ephesus. It was a bustling commercial center, but it was also a thriving religious center. Uh, it was home to the temple uh, Artemis or Diana, which uh, is known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was known that for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is just because how large the temple to uh, Artemis was. It was some 425 feet by 220 feet wide by 60 feet tall which if you're having a hard time figuring out what that looks like, that's 15 of our main halls put together. Or you could say it this way, it's just a little bit smaller than our entire parking lot. That's how large this this temple was. It had 127 marble pillars that wrapped around the building. They were each six feet around. And it it was known not just for this majestic temple, but for what went on in it. Because Diana was this, she was the goddess of fertility, and um, yeah, it was, it was known for the perverse sort of worship that would happen there. That to commune with the goddess, uh, you would visit temple prostitutes. As you can imagine, this, this made uh, this religion quite marketable, and had travelers coming from all over the world to enjoy the festivities and commune with the goddess. It was a world-famous Uh, magnet for religious tourism, and it produced a metropolis filled with idolatry and pride and perversion and greed. Think of like Las Vegas. But the gospel reached people in Ephesus. There's no place that is so dark that the gospel light cannot pierce, and God in His mercy showed mercy to some people in that city in Acts chapter 19, The gospel came there and a church was birthed and right away it was met with great hostility and a riot ensued because they thought that Diana was going to get, they were throwing shade at Diana and she was going to, people were going to stop worshiping her in order to turn to this, this Jesus. Well, the church survived and it thrived and 
Over the years, uh, Paul uh, spent yeah, uh, three and a half years there. He sent Timothy back there. Later on, the apostle John ministered there. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John to the churches in that, that area. And when this letter, the, the book of Revelation, comes to the church at Ephesus, and this word comes to them, they've probably been around for some 30 years. It's about how old the, the church is. And Jesus, as he appears to them, he wants them to know that he is, verse 1, him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. You remember back from chapter 1, verse 20, these, these stars are, are angels. Now, some would say that these, these are, are really just pastors, because you'll notice he writes here in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. So this letter is addressed to this angel, and some will say, well, these are pastors, but there's 79 times that the angel, this word angel shows up in the book of Revelation, and every single time he's talking about angels. It's always about them, so it's, this is certainly uh, about angels. There's likely an angel who is observing what's going on in this congregation, who's serving this congregation under the authority of Jesus. That seems a little strange to us. Uh, there's probably a, a church of, or an angel of the church of Delray Baptist Church, it seems. Again, seems strange, but it's consistent when you look through the, through the Scriptures. Matthew 18, you have angels that watch over believers. In Daniel 10, you have angels who watch over cities. 1 Peter 1, angels long to look at how the gospel saves sinners and they're brought into the church. Ephesians chapter 3, we're told that the, the wisdom of God is displayed in the church to angels and demons. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, women are, are called to honor God in their, their God-given role because angels are watching. So in some sense, it's, I think it just remained mysterious to us, this letter is written to the church in the presence of this angel who is watching over the congregation. Verse 1, Jesus is also him who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus here acts as the high priest, walking among the tabernacle, tending to uh, the, the light of the lamp, ensuring that it burns brightly. This one who walks among them, he, verse 2, he knows. Shows up twice here. He knows what's going on there. He knows. He sees. Nothing escapes his eye. Jesus walks among his churches. He purchased them with his own blood, and he walks among them. Which Delray Baptist Church means that he walks among us even now. And as we'll see a little bit later, in each of the, the ways that Jesus begins his message to each unique church, he highlights some characteristic about himself that is going to be uniquely important for that church to do what he calls them to do at the end of his, his word to them. So we should notice here that he again is the one who holds these stars and walks among them. So what does Jesus say to this church while he's among them? Well, we're going to see that he says something good, something bad, and something hopeful. This will be the pattern in most of the churches. There'll be a few exceptions. We'll catch those as we go through them. But he says something good, something bad, and something hopeful. Something good. Again, verse 2, I, I know your works, he says. Your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you have tested those 
who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Verse 6, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Jesus begins here with a word of encouragement, a word of commendation to them. He says, you guys love the truth, and you work hard to guard the truth. And I see it, and I know it, and I know this is what y'all are about. You are devoted to protecting pure doctrine. You guys are vigilant against false teachers. If there's a wolf, you guys are after him. And this is important because you remember the Apostle Paul had warned the church in Ephesus that false teachers were coming. Listen to what he said back in Acts chapter 20. To, this is Paul speaking to the, the elders at the church at Ephesus. Acts 20, he says, <clears throat> I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul, in his way out, he says, listen, I love you guys as a church. I love you. You know that for three years I've pled with you. I've taught you. I've pled with you. I've prayed with you. I've wept with you. I love you, but be careful because liars about Jesus are coming and some are even going to come from in your midst. Later, Paul would send Timothy back to this church. This is what he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Brothers and sisters, I'm sure if you're aware of this, but in every age there are people that lie about God that twist the things that God says in His Word for lots of other reasons, either to gather a following or fill your bank account or just to get influence or authority or whatever it may be. There's many, many motives for people to be involved in religion and that people lie about Jesus all the time. And they use the Bible to do so. One of the scary things about the Scriptures is that you can take a verse out of context and make it say anything that you want. And people do it all the time. And Paul warns the church there, be on the alert. And it seems that this church has, they've listened to that warning and they've, they've taken it to heart. Jesus commends them for doing so. He says, you guys are dedicated. I know your toil. The word toil there means that you've worked unto exhaustion. If there's error, listen, you guys are on it. You are tirelessly teaching and testing and equipping and researching. You guys are dedicated. I know your toil. You guys are also determined. You have patient endurance. He mentions their endurance twice here in verse 2 and 3. It means to remain steadfast under pressure. Because wolves, they, they rarely flee quickly. But they keep driving them off. The waves of the world are constantly crashing, yet they keep holding on to the truth. They're not letting anybody take it away from them. They will not be swept away by the error of the day. They are determined. They're also defending. Did you catch it there? You cannot bear with those who are evil. They, they won't accept the nonsense. They won't support it. They won't tolerate it. If there's a false teacher, they are, they are, they are out there right away refuting him. If there's some sort of perversion sneaking into the church, they're on it. They're going to stamp it out. If somebody's 
tweeting about something that's wrong, they're going to be right there saying, "Uh uh-uh, this is what the Word says. There's no room for deception in this church. These guys are, they're defending. They're also discerning. You see where he says there, you test those who call themselves apostles and are not. This is one of the live problems going on in the early church, is that you would have these traveling apostles who would show up at congregations, and they would come in here, like this morning, somebody would come in and they'd say, I'm, I'm an apostle sent by John, or sent by Paul, or sent by whomever, sent by Jerusalem. And so then the pastor would, would feel compelled to say, well, then come on up, please. We need a word from an apostle this morning. But not, that's not how it would roll in Ephesus. They'd be like, are you? You sure you're an apostle? Uh-uh, you're going to meet with John Henderson in the back. Go get him. All right? John's going to start asking you a few questions. And he can do that soul ninja thing he does, and you're in trouble. All right? Watch out. <laughs> this is a discerning bunch. They're, they're not going to just go with whatever. But they're, they're going to make sure that, that these people are telling the truth. They're like the Bereans of Acts 17 who examined the Scriptures just testing to see if what was said was so. Because you know that, that an apostle, a true apostle, is not going to contradict something that Jesus or the other apostles said. And also, verse 6, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know much about this group, but evidently some guy named Nicholas gathered quite a, a following. He was probably edgy. He probably pushed uh, the boundaries. He was likely insightful. He may have had some, some trendy writings. He Probably had some controversial articles. He was probably famous on Instagram. He was, he was one of those guys. That's all we know about him. But we do know that he had quite a following. He's mentioned a couple times in these churches. Which, by the way, I just want to note here. Whoever this Nicholas guy was that got this following, he was super popular in his day, but nobody can find a trace of him today. You, you can't find anything about him. The reason I want to highlight that is just to caution you against trendy theology. There's always going to be somebody in every, in every age who's going to come up with new ideas and push the bounds. They're always going to find some new creative way to spin an idea with this new thing. And just be careful. As Brian Davis will say, if it's new, it ain't true. It's just... it's. This is what happens, this, this inventing of new ideas. But that's not what the stewardship of the church is. The stewardship of the church is to take the, the true things that God has said in His Word and to hold fast to those. But just note here that there's always trendy ideas. I think it's also important to notice here, what does Jesus think about these false teachers? He hates them. He hates the works of the Nicolaitans. Jesus has a holy hatred against people and their lies about who He is and what He is like and what He says and what He requires of people. And Jesus commends the church for sharing in that hatred of false teaching. Notice this. Because we live in a day where if you stand against something, you're called hateful. Now listen, this is not a pass to be a jerk for Jesus. That's not at all what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that if false teaching doesn't bother you, 
if in your soul it doesn't move you to say, that's not true, you're lying about the Lord who shed His blood for me. There's something off. Christianity is not just happy, clappy stuff. This is, these are truths that send people to heaven and hell. This is truth about the Lord of glory. We ought never have a casual attitude about false teaching. We should be patient with people. We should have gospel hope with all people. But brothers and sisters, you and I have a responsibility to ensure that teaching that happens here is, is happening according to God's Word. And this is where I just want to give a word of, of commendation and encouragement to you. Listen, y'all, I love the fact that y'all love pure doctrine. I love the fact that if I start preaching some crazy nonsense, somebody's going to tackle me. <laughs> like, I do not think I would finish a sermon if I just started spewing heresy. Somebody would come and tackle me. I'm, I mean that. I think it would happen. One of the things that we make really clear in the membership class is that if you're a member here, one of your responsibilities before God is to fire me if I lie about God. Please, for my soul's sake and your soul's sake, do not allow leaders, just because you like them or whatever, in order to stay around if they're lying about God, if they're twisting the Scriptures. I, I commend this church because I think you guys do this well. I think we... We strive to do this well, is to love the truth. And I, I hope it's because we love Him. Jesus mentions here, verse 3, they were committed to bearing up for my name's sake. They protect the name. They proclaim the name. They defend the name. They, de they defend the truth about the name. And Jesus commends them. He says something good. This is actually, by the way, one of the largest, longest uh, commendations that he gives to any of the churches. This is, this is a great encouragement to this flock. But not all is well in Ephesus. He said something good, now he has something bad. Something bad, verse 4. <clears throat> but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first, or some translations, your first love. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. We don't know what, but something happened. Something happened to this truth-loving, doctrine-defending, wolf-slaying congregation. Something happened over the years in which their heart began to grow cold and they had abandoned the love you had at first. The word abandon there, it means to stop doing something, to cease, to leave behind, to forsake. They left behind love. They left behind their first love, the love they had at first. Now, this ought startle us. How, how could a church that loved the truth so much receive such a grievous reproof from Jesus? These were the Bible people. They knew the Word. They knew all the Greek words for love. 
They knew agape and eros and storge and phileo. They knew them all. They knew all the words. They could parse it out, diagram it. They could spot when somebody's misusing it. How could they have abandoned love? There's a bit of discussion about love for whom. Love for, for whom was abandoned? Was it their, was it their love for God, maybe? Because you know that can happen, right? You know that it is sadly too e- easy to become busy for the Lord while neglecting fellowship with the Lord. You know, it's, it's quite possible to read His Word as an as an end in itself rather than as a means to an end of knowing Him and enjoying Him and loving Him? There is such a thing as dead orthodoxy where you know all kinds of truths about God yet your heart toward God grows cold and calloused and unfeeling and unmoved. You know, it's possible to become so busy putting out fires of heresy that you don't tend to the fire of your own affections for God in your heart. You can get so busy arguing about doctrine and truth and not adoring the one from whom it all flows. This can happen to any church who loves the truth. And what's really scary about this is that you don't notice it at first. I mean, this was likely shocking to the Ephesian church. It was also likely shocking to all the other churches. I mean, this is a church that defends the truth. They know the word. False apostles don't even wander over there. They don't come back. How in the world could they not have love? You see, heartless Dedication to the truth isn't always easy to detect, especially at first. It's a, it's a subtle pride, very similar to, to carbon monoxide, that over time just deadens you and dulls you until you're just a corpse. I think it's important to understand that this, where this starts This doesn't begin, this sort of knowing the truth but then not being moved by the truth, it it doesn't start where everybody can see it publicly. It begins in the privacy of our own lives. Brothers and sisters, this would be a good time to do some, some honest evaluation. What's the first thing you run to in the morning when you wake up? Is it, is it His Word? Is the first thing I want to hear from Him because today might be the day that He returns. Today might be the day. Is it to have to go to the restroom, come back, get on your knees and say, Lord, would you use me today? I don't care what it costs me. I don't, I don't care I don't care what i got to look like in front of people. I want you. You say you're with me to the end of the age. That is my treasure. Make it my treasure. I don't feel it right now, but change that in me. Oh, God, please, 
I want to know you. I want to be with you wherever you go. I want you. Show me your glory. Let me see it. I don't feel it right now. Would you change my heart, please? What do you do in your spare time? What do you naturally run to? I propose that whatever you naturally run to is what you love. I love sports and distractions and social media and news and email because for me, it's an easy, easy, it's accessible, and it's an escape from hard things. One of the most difficult times for me to focus on God is when I'm working on a sermon because it's hard spiritual work and there's 10,000 other things. It's the best time for me to clean my office. It's an amazing time for me to organize my books. It's, it's an incredible time to rearrange all of the mugs that I have on a shelf. I mean, it's the best time. Which we kind of laugh at, but there's a reason that that's there in us. It's because there's real spiritual warfare that's going on for our souls and our attention. And it is easy to know all the truth, yet not be moved by it. Listen, Delray Baptist Church, we can love ministry more than we love Jesus. We can love having a healthy ecclesiology more than Jesus. We can love truths of the Bible more than we love Jesus. We can love morality more than we love Jesus. Anything, and oftentimes especially good things, can become idols. Like a husband who goes to work 80, 90 hours a week claiming that he does it because he loves his family and wants to provide for them, but then he comes home and he neglects his wife's hand and her heart and sees his kids as obstacles and a nuisance to manage. Why are you really working? Who do you really love? Same thing can happen in ministry so easily. We can do this in our relationship with Christ. Become so focused on things that are good, but forget that which is best. Fall into the trap of Martha. You remember Martha and Mary had Jesus over to the house. And what's Martha doing? She busy, right? She gets, Somebody got to tend to crock pot. Somebody got to make sure the crumbs. Jesus knows everything. I get all the crumbs. I got to clean things up. I got to make sure the bathroom's clean up for the kids because who knows what happened in there. We got to. She was busy. And you remember what Jesus said to Martha? Martha, Martha, you're worried about so many things, but you've neglected the good thing at which Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus because she wanted to hear him. She wanted to know him. You see, this church in Ephesus had evidently seen study of Scripture as an end in itself rather than a means to an end. God had become a subject to study. The Bible had become a textbook to figure out. Brothers and sisters, do you commune with the Lord Jesus? I'm not just talking about do you go to church, but do you, do you practice his presence, aware that he is among us, asking him to, to help you to, 
to make that meaningful to you afresh. That you'd love Him and to know Him. Not just about Him. Do you, do you read the Scriptures? Do you pray? If talking to God and hearing from God don't, don't mark you, you might, might ask, what does that reveal about your love for God? Not only that, but do we obey Him? Because that's another way that this can happen. That you get all your doctrine in line and you know the right answers, but you, you don't obey it. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus said. Do you love him? Again, I'm not, I am not attempting to guilt you because guilt moves no one to love for God. But I think it'd be helpful for us to do some examining of our hearts. It's quite possible to know God's word and write blog posts defending God's word and <laughs> to tweet about God's word, Instagram God's word, yet to not obey it and allow it to move us. Delray Baptist Church, I w- as I read through these churches, I think of all of them, this is the one that I have the most fear of us becoming like. I'm not scolding you and saying you don't love God. I think God's love is marked among us in many different ways, but, but it is easy to just be devoted to doctrine. It's easy, and especially as we grow, to just come, come and show up and just do the right thing and know the right stuff and not be moved in love for Jesus. A word to children who are in here. It's a great blessing to be raised in a Christian home. It's, it's a great honor to hear God's Word regularly. I know sometimes being brought to church is maybe not what you want to do. I just want to encourage you, though, it is a great honor But please, please know that God has no grandchildren. And I just want to encourage you even today to ask, do you really believe these things? And do you really love him? And if not, ask God to give you a heart that loves him. That you would know him truly and personally for yourself. Maybe it was their love for God or maybe maybe it was their love for others. Maybe it was their love for, for one another. You know, it's, it's, it's actually much easier to study what the Bible says about loving one another than to actually love one another. <laughs> it's much easier to define forgiveness than to forgive people who sin against you. It's much easier to listen to me preach about patience than to be patient with people who don't respond in the way and the timing that you think they ought much easier to defend scripture than practice it when it calls you to sacrifice your own eases and comforts to help those who are in need. Delray Baptist Church, I think this is an area that we could be tempted in as, as well. Because love takes time and we get tired. Love requires sacrifice and we're so prone to being selfish. Love requires gentleness which I don't know about you, but it is so easy for me to just think, why are they so ridiculously stupid? Why why do they act this way? And the Lord's like, well, you've got it all together, don't you? He doesn't actually say that to me, but that's what it feels like. Why over time is it 
so easy to default to just studying the Scriptures rather than ensuring that everything that we hear, we think through the lens of how can I show someone else the love of Christ by obeying this? Listen, brothers and sisters, love requires forgiveness and patience with one another, and the longer that we do life together, the more we will disappoint and hurt one another. I recently had a conversation with someone who was very humble and honest about some disappointments they had in regards to to love that they, they had hoped to receive in a time of need. And this, this person was not being high maintenance or anything like that. They, they, had a legitimate, they had a legitimate reason to be hurt. And I don't think there was anything malicious that was done, but it was a fresh reminder for me of how easy it is to just go through the motions in an age where it's so much easier to text or to email rather than to call or to visit. This would encourage us to be a church that moves beyond just electronic interactions and that we actually seek to love one another with our presence. And I want to thank you for the way, Delray Baptist Church, that we do love one another with meals and visits and notes and calls, but let us do it all the more. If you think I need to do this, please talk to the, the member care team. We've got Jeremiah Holston and we've got the Hughes family, Justin and Laura and they would love some people to come alongside who have some spare time to say, hey, listen, I want to help members who are in need. Please, I want to do that. They would love to help you think about how to do that. Do that in your community groups. Also, as I was thinking about this, I thought about our long-termers, meaning those of you who have been here for a long time and who intend to be here for a long time. It could become weary in loving people who come and go. Mark Dever calls it hugging the parade. I just want to encourage you to not grow weary in doing good. God can give supernatural strength to continue to love one another because it is easy over time to just grow cold and just say, I'm not going to engage anymore. I'm just going to show up and do rather than to keep giving of yourself. May God help us to not grow cold in our love for one another. Maybe it was their love for God, maybe it was love for other members of the church, or maybe it was their love for the lost. They were to be a lampstand giving light off to the world, but they had been so concerned with shining light on sin that maybe they had neglected to show the light of compassion and patience and gentleness to sinners. Can that happen? Can, can that happen in a church that, that knows the truth about about people can get so caught up in making sure believers know or unbelievers know <clears throat> that they're dead in their sin and that judgment awaits them, that they can neglect to have compassion and be moved by the fact that eternal destruction is awaiting people? Or can Christians be so consumed with yeah, studying about God and fellowshipping with one another that they never develop relationships with non-Christians? Or that you maybe never even really give thought to the fact that you're surrounded by people who are on their way to an eternal hell. The only other thing I'll say about this is that mature love for God does not show itself in evangelizing less. One of the things that often marks new Christians is that they'll share with anything and anybody. Sometimes in ways that you're like, hold on now, partner, good idea. Let's tone that down just a little bit and correct some theology. All right? 
But brothers and sisters, I was, I was challenged by this in recent months as I've been developing the evangelism course that we're going through here and thinking about when I was a brand new Christian, I would share with anybody and how prone I am now to over-rationalize and be afraid of people and not even be moved at times as about people's eternal destiny. We're not sure exactly what love it was that they had grown cold in, but to love the truth without loving Jesus and loving others is to miss the whole point of, of being a church. They had become like the Dead Sea that was filled with all these minerals, but there was nothing going out and nothing could live there. The church at Ephesus had stood against heresy, yet it did so in a way that was void of love, which became a form of heresy in itself, a loveless Christ that they were promoting. The church had abandoned the love that it had at first. I want to be clear, I think that all of this flows from the first, but they're all connected. Our love for God is what produces love for others and love for the lost. So I think it all flows downstream here. But Jesus here confronts this drifting church. And because he loves them, the great physician has a, a perfect prescription. Verse 5, he says to them, <coughs> Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Jesus says to this church whom He purchased with His own blood, remember, repent, and repeat. Remember, think back, recall. Remember from where you have fallen. This is not a call to mere nostalgia where they remember the good old days, but this is a call to consider Jesus afresh, to remember His gospel afresh, to consider what they were saved out of or to save from to think back to the place from where they had fallen. When was the last time you just meditated on what Jesus saved you from? That if you, were, if, if you maybe came to Christ later in life, that you stop and you think, where would I be had Christ not intervened? Or if you don't remember a day when you didn't know Jesus and you look back and you think, what would I have been had Jesus not kept me from my wicked heart? Wherever you are in that, he says, look back and let his mercy that intervened in your life move you to love him. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember and let that remembering move you to repentance, to turn or to change. Pray for God to, to change your mind in the way that you think about him. To change your affections and your desires for him. To change your actions in the way that it's going to show itself in everything you think, do, and say. And then he says to repeat. Remember, repent, and repeat. Do the works you did at first. Go back to making time in prayer a priority. Go back to making time in the Word a priority. Do whatever you've got to do to do that. Get some accountability. One of the things I do, I have this thing on my computer that, that it won't let me get on sports or social media uh, before a certain time or until a certain time. I have windows blocked off that I can't get on there because that's where I normally run news, stuff like that. It helps me to say, okay, no, I'm going to come to the Lord and say, God, I'm sorry. I confess to you that I wanna, I'd rather look at other stuff than talk to you. Change my heart. 
do the works you did at first. Pray, search the Scriptures, spend time with each other. Come back to sacrificing your resources in order to help others. To, to use your time to, to serve the, the lost or the needy and the poor. And, and don't hear this just as a, hey, get your act together kind of thing. No, no, no. This repentance requires grace from God. So ask Him to give it. He supplies strength for all that He commands. The gospel is not just for non-believers, it's for Christians as well. Ask Him to help you to love Him because all love flows from Him and to Him and out to others. And also, again, notice here that repentance is not just for people who don't know Jesus. Which I would say, if you're here today and, and you don't know the Lord Jesus, if, you're, if you haven't repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, please hear this Jesus He's not just concerned about what's happening in his churches. He is, but he's also concerned with what's happening in your life. And it's God's mercy to bring you here today to encounter this Jesus who lived a life unlike the one that you have lived, a perfect life, and then died on the cross to take the judgment that you and I deserved. And then he rose from the dead. And no matter where you have been or what you have done, he delights in forgiving your sins. Cry out in faith from your heart and say, please, change me. Even if you're not sure if that's true, say, God, I'm not even sure if that's true, but if it is, help me to believe it. Turn to him. But repentance is also for believers and for churches. Repentance is the regular response of believers as we journey home to heaven. It's an act of faith in which we're always turning from that which lures our hearts away from loving Jesus. The last thing I want to say about this is that now is the time to repent. Don't always assume that you'll, in the next season of life or whatever it may be, that's when you'll really begin to get serious about time with Jesus again. Friends, we're not promised another moment. Verse 5, Jesus warns them, if not, if you will not do these things, if you will not remember and repent and Repeat these actions as before. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is a serious threat here by the Lord Jesus. He threatens judgment upon this church to remove them, to replace them, to snuff them out. Which doesn't mean He's just going to come down and just squash them and that's the end. It's something much a different kind of terrifying. That he will withdraw his spirit from the church. And what will be left is a shell of people who are right about everything. Truth will be there. Doctrine will be there. Morality will be there. But Jesus will no longer be there. Friends, this can happen to any church. No church is above that. I just want to point out that I think that this church is evidence that God will hear churches that call for and repent and call out to Him. This church was, I mean, if you rewind nine years ago, ten years ago, this church was known as a viper pit. It had whittled down to somewhere between five and 15 people and devour pastors, and it was just about dead. 
And then a few faithful cried out to God and asked for help and for mercy. And I don't say that to congratulate ourselves and look around and say, well, look at what we've done. Anything good that's ever happened here has come from the Lord. But there were people who repented of dead religion, who repented of just having a right doctrinal statement and just right stuff, and they cried out to God and asked Him for mercy to change us. And you know what? He's doing that. And we're still very much in process, but, but praise be to God. He's a God who makes promises and keeps them. So know this can be true for you as well in your own life. I do think it's also important to notice here, though, that, that Jesus does not need this church. Did you notice that Jesus didn't say, now come on guys, you're a really important church, you're kind of a flagship church, um, I mean you've got all the, you know, you've got the doctrine down, we really need you, could you please get it together because I don't know what I'm going to do without you. No, he's grieved over their sin very much, but he does not need them. He does not need us. Everyone is, no one is indispensable. Well, thirdly and finally, there's something hopeful here. There's something hopeful here. He's said something good and something bad, and now he says something hopeful. As he will do with each church, he concludes his message to them with a word of promise. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This church is in need of heavenly help, and Jesus is ready to give it. And one of the ways that he gives it to him here is he holds out this promise to them and to us that to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. What he's saying is that those who will by faith persevere with Jesus, repent of their lovelessness and cling to him, that they will share in his conquering victory over sin, Satan, and death, and that he will usher them into the paradise of God. You remember the Bible began in a place called Eden, which means delight. It was a paradise. There our first parents enjoyed fellowship with God. They, they dwelt with him without boundaries or barriers. They knew him. They walked with him in the cool of the day. And in this paradise, they had access to the tree of life which was not some magic tree, but rather was a provision at which Adam and Eve could continually receive life-giving sustenance from God. But when they sinned against God and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were cast out from paradise into the world in which we now live, filled with pain and sin and suffering and death. And what God does here. What Jesus does here for this church is he lays out before them the hope that I'm taking you to a better land. I'm going to take you to a new heaven and a new earth. And everything that you lost through sin will be given and more in this new heaven and new earth. And you can have access once again to this tree of life where you will come unhindered. You will see me face to face. You will have my provision and my protection. I will be with you. He lays this before them to woo their hearts from whatever else it is that they are loving. He's showing them the greater treasure which is himself and what he has for them so that they will see everything else as, as, as secondary and as mere gifts to be enjoyed and that he is the great treasure. And it's interesting as Jesus lays these promises before the churches, each one of these is seen again in the end of the Bible. Listen to how Revelation ends. Revelation 22, 1. Then the angel showed me 
the river of the tree of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will have no need of light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with Him forever and ever. And then in verse 14 it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and they may enter the city by the gates. Jesus is holding this promise among them. And we said this earlier, but back in chapter 1, he showed himself as the one who is near to them, who walks among them, who has the authority to send angels to help them. Jesus is calling them to repent, and he is giving them everything they need to do it. He supplies all the grace that we need for everything he calls us to do. We can know that if he shed his blood to save his bride, he will most certainly do everything that the bride needs to do to be able to to, to make it home. This is what he's laying before them. Along with the requirement of verse 7, that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a call to listen. To not just hear, but to listen, to receive, and to respond, to hear that this is a word from God Almighty, a moment of mercy to the Ephesian church and to our church, a call to examine our hearts, to open ourselves up to one another to examine our hearts, to ensure that, yes, we are holding to true doctrine that we might hear a good word, but to see in what ways the bad word of a cold heart heart toward God and toward others might be slowly creeping in. Brothers and sisters, I pray that this church will never be marked by lovelessness. But may God give us grace and may His Spirit give us eyes to see if it's among us and ways we may turn from it and turn unto Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to You now and we thank you that you are a God who sees all and knows all. We thank you that your Son, the Lord Jesus, walks among the churches, even our church. We thank you for his words of encouragement and correction to the church at Ephesus in the way that it so clearly applies and challenges us today. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a church that does love the truth and that defends doctrine and that will not put up with any kind of lies about you. But we also pray that we would not stop there, but that we would be moved by the truth, to love you, the God of truth, and that you would give us warm affections for you and for one another and for those who do not yet know you. Oh God, would you mark us by both grace and truth, by doctoral honesty and and love for you. Father, as we now sing once again and then hear a testimony and witness baptism, we pray that you would warm our hearts to you, the God who saves. In the name of Jesus, amen.